Today's episode may contain subject matter and language of a mature and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. This whole story is very twisted, and it seems like every time I ask a question of somebody, I get 20 more questions. There's no me walking away from this. She has no voice, and I'm not walking away, and so I can't talk anymore. Hey everybody, welcome back to Case Acquaint. You have found episode 14. Today we will be speaking with a family member of the subject of our episode. Unfortunately, the audio quality of the recording is not what we would have hoped. But with our apologies, we are hoping that you can overlook this in order to hear the important perspective this family member provides on the case. We debated about whether or not to use it, and in the end, we decided that the family's voice deserves to be heard, and that you, our listener, would find these short clips helpful in understanding more fully a story that is in dire need of your curiosity and engagement. I want to thank you for your patience, and I also want to thank the listener who suggested we run this story. We love receiving these suggestions because, as you all know, We want to focus on cases that are not getting the attention they deserve. With that said, let's get to the story. On the morning of May 9, 2014, a 33-year-old employee was absent from work at a dog boarding kennel. Considered a reliable employee, the fact that she hadn't even called was unusual. She lived just four blocks from the boarding kennel in the Cook County, Illinois village of South Holland. After a few hours of waiting, some co-workers decided to check on their colleague and friend. What was eventually discovered in the employee's apartment would mark the beginning of a family's painful search for justice, which continues to this day. This is the story of the brutal murder of Rachel Galbraith. Rachel grew up mostly with her grandma, but remained close with the rest of her family despite the fact that her sisters lived with their dad. Rachel graduated high school in 1999, and she worked a string of different jobs hoping to find a job that she enjoyed. Over the years, she discovered a love for animals, reading, arts, crafts, and finding clever ways to live a simple, frugal life. And in about 2008, Rachel, living in that small suburb of Chicago called South Holland, began to work at a place by the name of Lulabelle's Kennel, caring for pets and customers alike. She could easily walk to work because she lived just four blocks away, and happily, Rachel was able to bring her three little dogs, who she loved very much, to work with her. These were rescue dogs that had special needs, and one of them, Solo, was extremely aggressive to anyone it didn't know. So Rachel tried her best to spend as much time working with them whenever possible. According to Rachel's sister, Kelsey, Rachel loved these dogs and spoiled them rotten. Rachel's journey to early adulthood had not been easy. Her mom was in fragile health during her last years, fighting alcoholism, and Rachel felt obligated to remain in the Chicago area to help her mom. Still, Rachel and her sisters remained close. 
Once their mom died in February of 2012, Rachel began to consider leaving Chicago and often spoke about moving back to Wisconsin to be near her sisters, especially since Kelsey began a steadfast effort to convince Rachel to do so. She said she felt it was time for Rachel to move back in order to be with her family. Plans were being made. Rachel's sister Sarah was engaged and the typical family activities which normally accompany this exciting time were playing out in the girls' lives. Rachel never got to wear that dress to her sister Sarah's wedding because two weeks later, Rachel was murdered. Rachel had been living with an ex-boyfriend named Jason. It was sort of complicated. According to Kelsey, they had gone back and forth over the last 10 years being in a relationship, being friends, being just roommates, and maybe at times, everything in between. Even though to Rachel's family it seemed as if Jason tended to take advantage of Rachel financially and use her positive work relationship with her employer in order to get a job without having to stand on his own merits, and even though they had a complicated relationship history, that didn't stop Rachel from treating Jason like someone she cared about, whether or not she wanted to remain in a romantic relationship with him. But in early 2014, Rachel began to take some slow, determined steps to move on with her life. Even though the two were living together, Rachel began to date again. While Jason did still live with her, they slept in different bedrooms. It was her apartment. But we wonder, was Rachel afraid to kick Jason out for good? Three months prior to her death, she met a guy and she went on some dates with him. To be clear, they were not boyfriend-girlfriend. They were just seeing each other casually, you know, just going out on some dates. But Kelty recounted to us an incident she said she heard from Rachel, and then later she heard in more detail from Rachel's friends in which Rachel went on a date with this new person. As the man was dropping Rachel off after the date, they briefly sat in his car right outside her house, sharing a goodnight kiss. 
Suddenly, Jason stormed out of the house, banged on the car windows, and repeatedly called the man out of the car to fight. Rachel diffused the situation, but later that night, Rachel said that she woke up to Jason on top of her, in her bed. Rachel's friends later told Kelsey that Jason had carried a knife with him behind his back when he confronted Rachel outside. Soon, the entire situation changed drastically. Rachel found out that Jason was actually readying himself to move on despite his violent outburst in front of her date and later climbing on top of her while she slept. Later, Rachel's family says that the police told them that Jason had been living a double life that they'd never heard about, and there is a chance that virtually nothing they thought they knew about Jason was true. I had no idea that he had been with his ex-girlfriend for the last 10 years. I had no idea that he didn't have a CDL license. I didn't have an idea that he lied about working at PetSmart and Juliet. He lied about a lot of stuff. You know, we sat down and we talked and they let us know about this whole double life that we had no idea about. Yeah, so he ended up, he ended up having a double life and he married this woman two months later. Wouldn't it be convenient to tell your two girlfriends that your long trips as a hard-working truck driver explained your absences from their lives? But, turns out, according to police, Jason didn't even have a CDL. How could he be a trucker if he didn't have a CDL? Someone found an address listed online for Jason and then asked, hey, are you guys moving? And then they found the wedding registry. Think about this for a second, you guys. Your sister has just been murdered. You, along with your dad and your other sisters, drive down to Chicago in shock, not knowing what happened. You think you'll get some answers, maybe find a friend in Jason, you know, the guy who's been living with her off and on over the past 10 years, and who you just saw two weeks ago when you bought your sister a bridesmaid's dress for the upcoming wedding. Then you get there, and the guy is nowhere to be seen. He won't talk to you. You have to clean up her apartment because the landlord didn't call a biohazard remediation company. And while you're doing so, you notice that the guy's cat was still in Rachel's house. But apparently he no longer wanted this cat or his other belongings that he claimed he had already moved out of the home. So you have to figure out what to do with all of these things that he left behind. What he threw away. Or... We could look at it from another perspective, too. I'm going to imagine I'm a guy living with someone, and at this point, we've broken up. I'm not paying any bills anyway, so I don't care. And then finally, this lady that I'm living with starts dating again. And I might wonder how long I'd be able to get away with this lifestyle, leeching off a person who can barely afford to take care of herself. Now, I have another person in my life. She's also been on the back burner at times and I still have to act to her like I have my own place until we get married, right? Would she still want to marry me if she knew I was still acting like I wanted to salvage the other relationship, even if I hate the woman I'm living with? What would I do if the person I was leeching off of decided to kick me out because she found out I was engaged? I might start to panic, since I wasn't responsible enough to get my own full-time job myself, 
get my own place, etc. Is it possible that I might be in such an advanced state of delusion, lacking these basic critical thinking skills and or ability to take responsibility for my own life, that I might resort to something even more drastic than lying, cheating, using, and leeching? The police told Rachel's family that this was definitely possible, and they had no other explanation. On the night of May 6, 2014, a Tuesday, the same day Rachel told Kelsey the story you just heard, Jason allegedly collected the rest of his belongings, and he was the last person known to have seen Rachel alive. Nobody else was known to have access to Rachel's home besides Jason. Friday morning, May 9th, Rachel's normal shift began at 8 a.m. It was raining, so when Rachel didn't arrive on time, Rachel's boss began to try to call Rachel, wondering if she needed a ride, since Rachel didn't have a car. After several tries with no luck, the staff at Lulabelle's called the police, asking them to do a welfare check. The police went to the property, which had an apartment unit on the main floor and another upstairs. Rachel's apartment was on the main level. Police checked the doors and windows. No windows were broken, and the doors were locked. They reported to Lulabelle's staff that if they wanted access to the inside of the building, they would need to call the landlord. So, the staff called the landlord. When he arrived, he asked that someone who knew the dogs would accompany him because of that aggression issue we talked about. And also, the dogs could already be heard going crazy inside the apartment, barking nonstop. When they finally got into the building, the landlord noticed right away that something was wrong. One of the doors leading into Rachel's apartment was cracked open. Now, Rachel would never have left a door open. Her doors were always locked. He walked toward the basement, calling for Rachel, and as he did so, Rachel's co-worker and friend proceeded towards Rachel's apartment. There, Rachel could be seen, crumpled on the floor, partly in the hallway and partly in the kitchen, in a large pool of her own blood. Rachel had been brutally murdered. 
According to Rachel's autopsy, which was completed within less than a week, her jaw and nose were both broken. Her skull was fractured from multiple blunt force impacts to the head over 20 times, and she was beaten with such force, in fact, it caused bleeding inside her skull. There were more than 20 cuts and bruises on her battered body. The cause of her death was due to assault and multiple injuries. The manner of her death was homicide. She had been attacked from behind. Is it possible that a stranger could sneak up behind a woman who's inside her home that is occupied by three dogs, one said to be extremely aggressive to strangers? Is it possible that this stranger could also convince Rachel to leave one of her entry doors open and also convince her to turn her back for a split second while he pulls out a well-hidden but large and heavy object and begins to beat her senseless with it? Was there a serial killer lurking around South Holland, population 23,000? Just for the night, mind you, because no other murders like this have happened in South Holland since. Who would have the motive and the ability to do this to Rachel? 10.37 a.m. is the time Rachel was pronounced dead. The only thing Kelsey knew of that was missing from Rachel's apartment was a recently replaced pipe for the kitchen sink. That was noticed by the friend who had done the work for her. There's very little information released on the actual crime scene and the physical evidence it produced. The family observed that two kitchen tiles had been taken by the task force, but they've not been informed by police on the status of any physical evidence. As you might imagine, the family was shocked and devastated by Rachel's senseless murder. They wanted answers. They talked to everyone they could. Police brought in friends and others for questioning. Rachel's upstairs neighbor, who Rachel didn't seem to have much to do with, was brought in three times for questioning, and he submitted to and passed a polygraph test. The one person they couldn't seem to get a hold of, however, was, you got it, Jason. The guy who, only days before, was trying to rub up against Rachel from behind at work. The guy who had lived with her for several years and who, the day Rachel was discovered murdered, quietly went about his work tasks, even being sure to bathe all three of Rachel's dogs who had been taken to Lulabelle's. Yeah, that guy. Pretended like Rachel had never existed. Kelsey and the rest of the family were puzzled. Given their long history, wouldn't Jason want to know what happened to Rachel? Wouldn't he want the killer found and brought to justice just like anyone else who knew her? Would he even bother to attend Rachel's funeral? No, not so much as a sympathy card. Later, after the arduous tasks of taking care of Rachel's funeral, cleaning out her apartment, talking to her friends, Kelsey was told that the police could only hold Jason for a few hours for questioning before he lawyered up. Since that time, he's had no contact with any of them. Just because Jason pretended like Rachel had never existed, this doesn't mean he didn't know she was dead. He was very much aware of her murder, not only because the police were trying to talk to him. And I'm unsure if Rachel had to put in his social security number to get that submitted as a beneficiary, because I know nowadays you have to put the social security number in. 
you know, him saying that he didn't know, well, how do you not know if someone has your social security number? That's probably why uh, me and my father are pressed so hard about this, because, you know, we don't want her to die in vain. We don't want her to die for no reason, and we want him to pay for what he did. Because Rachel's murder was conveniently just a few days after her new life insurance policy went into effect. And it just so happened that this life insurance policy that Rachel purchased listed Jason as the beneficiary. A reporter for Crime Watch Daily approached Jason while he was walking his dogs one day. And Jason denied to her that he had prior knowledge of the policy, which awarded between $100,000 and $200,000 to him. Since Rachel's death, the communication and updates from police have all but ended. We here at Case Acquaint attempted to reach the detective assigned to the case, but we never heard back. If we do hear back, we'll come back and update you. While South Holland enjoys a low homicide rate, Rachel's case lacks resolution or even direction. Police admit that they believe Rachel's murder was a crime of passion, very personal, Are they waiting for someone to come forward? Do they have outstanding pieces of evidence that they could test? Despite the lack of movement on the part of law enforcement, Rachel's family is determined to make sure that Rachel's life and legacy is not forgotten, and they will not stop challenging law enforcement and the community to keep searching for answers, to continue to dig for the truth, and to fight for justice. Rachel's family created a Facebook page called Justice for Rachel Galbraith. They've held events, passed out flyers, and made themselves available to the media in order for Rachel's story to be told. They even have an annual Random Acts of Rachel Day, which gives people like you and me an opportunity to keep Rachel's memory alive by spending the day performing a random act of kindness, as kindness is what Rachel embodied. If you have some spare time, please take a minute to visit that Facebook page, which will be linked on our website, caseacquaint.com. And mark your calendar for the day, May 9th, the day they learned Rachel had passed, so you can help them honor Rachel's legacy by performing an act of kindness to others, or even doing something kind for animals, since Rachel was passionate about that. Also, you can share the page with your friends. If you have any thoughts on the case, which might help bring it back from the cold, You can message their page or contact the South Holland Police Department at 708-331-3131. Did you know Rachel or have you heard about her from friends or family? Police are in desperate need for someone to come forward with more information. I just want justice. I just want someone to be honest and tell the truth about what happened. And I just want justice for my sister. We're going to be uploading this episode to YouTube, and as you already know, we're on most major platforms. Please share this episode in whatever way you choose to access it, so you can help bring more attention to Rachel's case. Finally, I want to thank Kelsey for speaking with us about Rachel's case. We wish Rachel's entire family peace and justice. Thank you for listening to this story. We'll talk again soon.